Welcome back to the new series of the Sports Burrito. We are back with a hell of a lineup of guests for you. A serious lineup of guests for you. Kicking off with Dom Inglet. Got a bit of Wimbledon fever this week. A bit of insight into the tennis world. But um, yeah, my name's Dan Chitty and I'm joined by my esteemed co-hosts. I'm Lee Rook. And I'm Matt Foster. Um, Well, without further ado, let's just get into the meat of it. Here we are with Dom Inglet. Right, ladies and gentlemen, we have a really special guest here to, to keep moving in Series 3 of the Sports Burrito. And uh, we have with us the Davis Cup winning tennis player, doubles extraordinaire. He's won 14 times on the ATP Tour. He's been into the Olympics. Uh, Dominic Inglet, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I, I guess I'll just start with what's been, what's, what you've been doing recently. We, uh, you played at Queen's last week in the Sint Championship, as it now is. Uh, what was that experience like? You're playing with another Englishman, Luke Bambridge, and you're going to Wimbledon next week, I'm assuming. That's right, um, yeah. So how, are you, how are you feeling heading into the tournament, heading into the championships? What, what's it like? Um, yeah, I mean, I think obviously playing at home uh, is, uh, you know, it's, it's always you know, a plus. And now the fact that we've got some fans as well, so that's going to be a, you know, a massive bonus. Obviously, we've been playing um, without fans for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, this, this year's been tough in terms of the amount of travel, you know, sitting and isolating in hotels a lot. Um, it just hasn't been the same. And I know that a lot of guys um, are a little bit tired and, and burnt out. And, you know, I would, uh, and I think so, you know, the fact that we get to play at home now is, is great and, and fun in front of crowds. So, um, you know, that that's great. And I'm looking forward to it. And I think, um, yeah, we played Queens uh, since championships last week. And I, sadly, I actually kind of hurt my back in the second round. So, I, you know, wasn't at the races, should I say, at my best um, but, you know, not to take anything away from the guys that we played because they were pretty good. But, um, yeah, I decided to not play this week to kind of, you know, make it right for Wimbledon because obviously Wimbledon's five sets, so it's a lot more strain on the back than normal. But, um, I mean, I think uh, Luke just won his first round with Jamie Murray in Eastbourne this week, so he's obviously thriving without me. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, we're excited. We're looking forward to it. And I think, you know, just go out there and I think we've been trying to just think a little bit more about kind of going out and playing matches and having fun with it and and not worrying about results so much. I think I think in most cases, uh, COVID has sort of made people change their kind of perspective on, you know, life and, and what they might how work and, and things like that. So I think it's changed mine and, and, and it's definitely changed Luke's as well. So I think we're going to go out there and just try and really enjoy the experience uh, and kind of almost look at it, you know, sort of the way that we did when we were kids, you know, like just going out there and just taking it all in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, obviously, you've touched on it there. It's pretty pretty special playing in front of your home crowd, playing in the UK, uh, playing in England, Wimbledon particularly, the, uh, well, one of the most famous in the world. Um, do you have any particular memories? Obviously, getting to the semi-finals in 2018 was pretty special, but um, is there any, anything that sticks to mind outside of that at all? Or, or if you could talk us through that experience, getting that far in the tournament? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, obviously, I think my first um, my first ever Wimbledon was it's probably the most special that I've, been a part of because you know we got I got a wild card then with a guy called Chris Eaton who's a really good friend of mine um and you know you just go to Wimbledon for the first time I, I mean I played juniors but you know when you're playing the seniors you're like oh my gosh you know I, I'm here like this is this is the dream I'm I, you know I'm kind of living the dream 
um, quite literally. So, uh, you know, we didn't go in with a lot, whole lot of expectation. Um, we've gone to Queen's and got our asses handed to us, let's be uh-huh. honest about it, um, got absolutely smoked. And then we've, you know, changed our kind of mindset a little bit. And we were like, you know what, let's go out there and let's just absolutely take it to the opponents. We're going to go out there and almost hit two first serves. We're going to take some cuts. Let's scare people with the fact that we're unpredictable. And and we did that. And that will always stay with me because, you know, we played, I think, Foganini and Uli at first round, who are, you know, obviously tough opponents. We won that. Then we played the number one seeds who were Nestor and Mir- uh, not Mirny, Nestor and Zimenech at the time. And, uh, you know, we won that one in five sets. And that was the most exp- amazing experience. Like the fact that we were just like, wow, we just beat number one seeds at Wimbledon. Uh, that's always going to be my greatest Wimbledon memory, even more so than the kind of 2018 semi-final. Um, because I think sadly, as it, as it is with all sport, you know, once you sort of do better and um, you get kind of more professional and, and, you know, you're doing this for a living, it starts becoming, it tends towards becoming more of a kind of a job and, and you've got to do things that, are, you know, in the benefit of your job. So I remember that first year, like we were, I was going out watching matches. I was literally sitting there all day. I wanted to soak it all in. And by the time we got to our third round, I was absolutely spent, you know, I mean, I didn't, <laughs> there was nothing left in the tank. Cause I was like, wow, I've just been sitting around the courts all day, every day. And like, you know, that's probably not the best thing to be doing as a professional tennis player. So, but you know, sorry, fucking in some of the pims. Yeah, well, maybe not that. Not, <laughs> I wasn't experiencing that part. Maybe, maybe more the strawberries, but the uh, <laughs> less of the pims. But uh, yeah, nowadays it's sort of like you know, get in, get out. You know, business like. So um, I think you kind of lose a little bit of that sort of um, the goosebumps of playing at Wimbledon, should I say? But um, you know, I'm look for, looking forward to it and, and trying to replicate that 2018, which was obviously really special. And you know, even in the semis, we lost in a really close five setter. So. Um, that that will sadly kind of stay with me for the wrong reasons in the sense that it was an opportunity missed, but still, I'm you know really happy with the way it went. And um, and just on that actually, with in terms of uh, spending time at the courts and at, at the actual event itself, with the changing rooms, how does it work? I mean, obviously you're in there with your with your partner, but opposition wise, are you guys pretty close up in the changing rooms? Is there much chat with the opposition? Uh, I don't know behind the scenes kind of stuff, or is it just you stick yourself, keep yourselves to yourselves, and well, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, at Wimbledon now they had well, they used to have three changing rooms. Um, they had the kind of downstairs level, which is where the seeds would go, and in doubles, only the top four seeds would be in there. Um, and then upstairs were two se- were two changing rooms, which was like a north and a south. But actually, now they've been combined into one, so uh, it'll be even more cozy than normal. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you always see your opponents in there and unless of course they're one of the top four seats but that hasn't happened too often um and you know yeah you, i mean you're bantering you see these guys you know week in week out i think everyone's kind of very friendly there's very few guys i would say that i don't particularly like um you know on the on the road there are one or two but you know whatever i'm not gonna be really you know losing too much sleep about that one but yeah i mean it's, it's just all good fun and games and uh I know they, they, as it happens, they always have uh, one of the locker attendants. He always has this like little challenge. So he has, they usually have putters and a little putting kind of like hole that you've got to putt to. But what they do is they stick, they stick that at the far end of the change room. So no joke, you probably have about 
90 feet. Like that. There's something stupid <laughs> like, to make this putt. And so the challenge is if you do make it, you actually get a Wimbledon, you know, sign, like a ball with the Wimbledon emblem on it, right? Okay. Which I know that Ken right. Skutsky, one of the Brits, he's done it. But I mean, it's literally impossible because you're doing it across a carpet. <laughs> You've got guys walking to the showers, probably kicking your ball at some point. The chances <laughs> of you making it on this little target where you almost need binoculars to actually see this target, I mean, it's so slim. And I'm so jealous of Ken that he's got this bloody Wimbledon ball. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a good bit of banter. Everyone has a bit of a laugh. And that's the thing. He's just trying to keep it loose. And, you know, guys are in there watching, you know, a lot of the matches. I think more so than uh, any other slam, I, I feel like because it's five sets, you're always looking, you know, two sets to love up. You know, anything can happen. I mean, I've seen it many a times where guys are two sets to love up and still lose. And you know, even they're cruising because it's that, focus that has to stay for so long and, and ultimately people lose it a bit yeah and that sounds really interesting i mean going back to really your college career um you had the the infamous experience of going out to the u.s at the university of virginia how, yeah. how was all of that i mean it's so much bigger in america general sport in terms of division one colleges are nothing alike our university experience what was that like going out there how was it playing and you know, also, what was the travel like? Was it similar to what you're going through now? Was it sort of early, early perspective of what your career was like? Um, I mean, college was amazing. I'm so glad I went there. I, and I can't recommend it highly enough to, you know, juniors <clears throat> who are going to be kind of growing up and looking to play. I think the problem was, and the mistake I made, and, and what a lot of juniors make still to this day, is that they go, oh, you know what, my career's over if I go to college. It, you know, like, I'm not going to be hitting the pro levels at the age of 17, 18, and, and, you know, you think college is going to be over. It's, you know, this is not the same level. And it's the biggest mistake and, and biggest kind of misrepresentation of, of what actually college is like. I mean, it's fantastic. The facilities are amazing. Um, the kind of camaraderie amongst your teammates, you're actually enjoying yourself whilst training hard. They work you like a dog over there. But because the facility is so good, you're getting to see the best, you know, kind of uh, physios. You're in the gym with like great strength trainers and and um, and the like, and and you're amongst other high end athletes. I mean, you know, you're there amongst you know American footballers and and basketball players and and baseball players who end up, you know, all not all that's a lie, but a lot of them, you know, go on to professional ranks. So you're amongst other guys who are excelling in their sports and it's good to be around those kind of people. So um, luckily, you know, I had a smart father who kind of told me, listen, Dom, you know, you've made three or four ranking points in the world and that's not really, you're not lighting it up. I think it's time to go to college and yeah. see it goes, you know, and then have fun, get a degree, take the pressure off yourself and, and then come back and, and you can play if you want to, or if you can choose not to play, if you don't want to. Um, and that's the thing is, you know, like, as an 18-year-old, you don't have kind of the world perspective, so to speak. You don't realize what it is that you've got to do. And a lot of guys, as I said, they think, oh, I should be on the pro tour and I should be competing. But ultimately what they're doing is they're going to play futures in some, some godforsaken places, to be honest, in some cases. <laughs> you know, they're grinding out there. They're a complete it's not fun let's be honest it's not fun when you're trying to get up there on, at the first stages I mean yes you can play some futures let's say in England which is great but sometimes you've got to go to I mean 
it's almost like a rite of passage going to Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt for every Brit. I mean, there's so many torments there. And it's almost like if you've not been a player and gone to Sharm El Sheikh, you haven't, you don't, don't deserve to almost, um, you know, go pro. But it's just, you know, you see so many people, guys doing that. And I'm like, why would, you know, you could do that. Okay, great. Grinding, hustling it out. Or you can go to college and sort of do that sort of, I don't know, apprenticeship, if we could call it, where you're understanding your game on a basis of like a, of a men's game. Do that amongst teammates playing week in, week out against other schools. Um, and yeah, you're traveling with your guys. You, you know, you're having fun and, and you're playing the team. And there's, there's a lot of pressure as well because you don't want to let your team down. So there is that sort of pressure as well. And you've got three coaches who are traveling with you. You, you know, you get all the help you need. So I think it's it's so such a great environment. And, and I just don't think that A, people give it enough respect and B, Sadly, there's not enough people in Britain who try to push people to go, not push, but direct them in that, in that way. Because sadly, in my opinion, you know, the, the tennis associations in Europe, for example, you know, they, I don't know, I don't know if maybe they, they worry that if they tell a player, hey, listen, you should go to college. They're almost telling them you're not good enough to go pro, which is strictly true. And you've got to be tough on them. But I remember I spoke to Kevin Anderson. Um, this was at two years ago, Wimbledon, actually. And so he was getting treatment on one table. I was talking and we're talking because I was on the next table. And we were having a discussion about what he thought, you know, what he thought the ranking you had to be at in order to not even consider college. And I said to him, I go, I honestly think it's like 350 in the world. And he was like, in my opinion, I think it's 250 in the world to not consider college. So if someone of that caliber is saying, listen, unless you're 250 in the world, you should be thinking about it. And a guy who's like 900 or 1,000, who's got a few points, it should be a no-brainer that he should go to college. And, yeah. and I think the other thing is that you don't have to go for four years. You can go for one year. You can see how it is. If you don't like it, come back, play pro, no problem. No one's going to, no you know, hold it against you. Gave it a shot, you didn't like it, move on. But some people will love it. And as I said, best, best, decision, I, best, yeah, best decision I've made. <laughs> Brilliant. You mentioned a lot of the places you travelled to, and you, you went with Sharm El Sheikh as, as, I mean, which would be an interesting place to play tennis, I'm sure. Are there any places that particularly stand out in terms of venues or cities that you've gone and played at, either as particularly cool places to go play tennis or as dives where you, where you basically sit praying? So what's in terms of you getting there, you play your tennis, you finish the tournaments and you just want to get out of there? I mean, to be honest, I actually I never actually went to Sharm El Sheikh. <laughs> I, know, I know, as I said, it's a rite of passage, but I didn't go because... Um, because literally, uh, you know, I was in college. So when I came out, you know, I played a bunch in Britain and actually got my ranking up reasonably fast. So I didn't have to go to those kind of places. Um, as I said, because college gives you that sort of framework where you can really move quickly up the rankings afterwards. Um, places that I've been that were questionable. Um, thankfully, I didn't ever go to too many you know, won't use the language that I should probably use to describe it, but <laughs> terrible places. I know what um, you mean. <laughs> I know, I know I've, I've heard of guys who have like gone to like places like Nigeria and they needed police escorts because there was literally gunfire outside the hotel and things like that. So that, I guess that's a real character builder. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I remember going to Uzbekistan, to Tashkent. Nice. Um, and it actually wasn't even that bad, except for the fact that they were still building the courts when we got there. So, 
you're sort of like, okay, that's kind of tough to cracky on. And then when I went to the showers, I remember literally, you know, wash, like, you know, kind of like showers coming down and I'm sort of like eyes closed, you know, like trying to wash my hair. And I look down and the water is brown. Oh, I mean, yeah. we're talking about straight brown. And, you know, like the water goes in your mouth and things like that. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to get ill. 100%. 100%. So the first thing I did, <laughs> first thing I did was I went to the hotel bar and ordered three shots of vodka and trying to like hopefully sure. kill some kill yeah. some germs. <laughs> I don't know what else you can do. So um, I, I've been to places like India as well, but that was more with juniors. I didn't ever go as a senior, so that was that was fun because that was a guaranteed diarrhea. And just yeah. like you got, how do you deal with a diarrhea? Is how is <laughs> how well you do those weeks. But one thing for sure, you never walk. Or leave your room without a roll of toilet, toilet paper. That's one hundred percent. Surely no white shorts as well when you're playing. You know, no white shorts. Exactly right. Exactly right. So um, those those are those are the most important things. Forget about the string or the rackets. Just make sure yeah. toilet paper's with you. But um, <laughs> but yeah, those those are fun ones. And luckily, I never really was you know too long in those in that sort of environment where I was playing at that level. But um, and playing in these kind of places that. You know more unsavory than, than most would like to go to but yeah I, I, still at the end of the day though the funny thing is we laugh and we talk about some of these things but actually if i was being completely honest and i spoke to a lot of players about this the stories that guys have the best ones are always from the futures and the challenger levels in these sort of environments you know mm -hmm. like there's not like if i'm talking about memorable kind of stories outside of the tennis court None of them really happen at the ATP level because everything's so perfect. It's not, it's not memorable for that reason. But you know, going to—I remember I went to South Korea and I had to stay in a sex hotel because the official was, the, the official was fully booked, and they sent me to this other hotel. And it was dark corridors. There was like luminescent sort of lighting above your room. You go into the room. Your my bed had three speeds. Right, you could press a button and the, middle <laughs> of the bed would go up like this, and then the second speed was like this, and the third speed was like absolute you almost like popped your back out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely hilarious. And then like the computer was there with porn on it, and there were there were you know condoms in, in the drawer. So, you know, like normally you go to a hotel, you might get the Bible and the Book of Mormon. <laughs> Here there was the, the condoms. So a little different. Condoms <laughs> Slight contrast. You're definitely not getting that at the Cinch Championships, I can tell you that much. <laughs> They're not doing that at Queen's Club, are they? No, no, definitely not. Just got to work on their customer service. Um, <laughs> and turning now to, to some more of, well, more of the successful stories in your career, obviously, um, Davis Cup 2015, the win to be a part of that team and to be a part of that that whole whole experience out there must have been absolutely amazing. Um, I mean, what was what was the experience like from your perspective? Obviously, the rounds versus the USA pretty tough. Being there from the for the final, um, and obviously in 2010, uh, you were, you were pretty near relegation. What do you think changed, um, and what caused such a big turnaround and that led to? All I mean, that? obviously, when Andy decides to play, that that you know that's a game changer. <laughs> <laughs> We can talk about all sorts of things, but I think there's a, that one stands out. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, we went to, uh, 
I remember playing my first tie in America um, in San Diego, and and that was that was quite an experience because literally when people started cheering and you walked out and you know they played the national anthem. I mean, the goosebumps, I, I literally was so jacked up, I couldn't believe it. It's just, you know, you've got so much adrenaline going. I remember my first service game, I think I hit about three double faults because I didn't know how to hit serve under 140 miles an hour. I was just like, I'm going to go for it. And, um, and and I got broken, and obviously that was a real downer. But, you know, then we came back and a year later and played in Glasgow, which, again, the noise was just amazing. I thought Glasgow was was incredible to play at. It, it, by far the best experience uh, for Davis Cup that I've had and, um, and you know we can always talk about oh should we play in England or play in Scotland and all that stuff but the Scottish crowds were really incredible um, and, and I think uh, when I look back at it you know if we ever had those opportunities again which sadly we may not because of the way the Davis Cup now is formatted um, that should always be our venue in my opinion because it just the, the sound was incredible there um, so you know those were amazing experiences and you know I still remember James Ward coming out with that win against John Isner. That was massive. Yeah. Um, you know, we then played the Bryans and lost a real close one, sadly. Um, but you know, the, you know, Andy got the job done the next day, which was which was awesome. And you know, that started the ball rolling. The Queens Club tie that was that was really good. I mean, I still remember Andy there again. I mean, talk about the difference maker. I mean, I still remember Andy literally peeling himself off the court after winning that second singles match because he was so tired. He played singles, doubles, singles. And, you know, it just goes to show you know, the kind of competitor and character he is. Um, then the Aussie tie, you know, once we, once we got to the Aussie tie, I think that's when we started really realising, we're like, wow, this could really happen. Like, you know, we're looking at the teams who are still left and the Fra France is such a strong team. So to beat them, that was a massive. And then the Aussies were like, well, this is much more beatable. Um, and again, massive doubles point that Andy and Jamie pulled out. Yeah, let's not forget Jamie as well, because I think throughout the doubles, he was such a rock as well. So, um, you know, those are vital points. And in the last tie, um, you know, it's just amazing to be out there and part of it. And I don't know, I, I always feel like, you know, it's sad because I, I didn't get chosen for that final four-man team in, in, in uh, Belgium. But I, I totally understand why Leon did that because, you know, there was the uncertainty of, you know, Kyle in his kind of maiden kind of tie, uh, whether he was going to, you know, be able to kind of live up to the pressure that came down to it. And, and James Ward was much more kind of uh, experienced. So he wanted both of them in case. Um, and obviously Andy at that point had said, listen, I'm playing doubles no matter what because I want to take this home for us. Yeah. Um, and, and if Andy says that, I, there's not many people who'd say, no, no, sorry, Andy, we're going to play Dom. <laughs> So, um, you know, I think, and, and that probably turned out to be the right decision. So, <laughs> what's playing with the Murrays like? Obviously, playing with uh, Jamie and Andy, but particularly Andy, I suppose, like he, at that time, maybe part of that big four group, but basically every single Grand Slam would come around. It'd just be those guys, him, Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, basically wrestling each other for every single title. What, what was it like getting to sort of play, get to know him in his prime and play with him in his prime and just see, see that sort of level of tennis up close, I guess? I mean, uh, uh, there's obviously uh, there's so many different kind of elements to it because, you know, singles and doubles is quite different. So you've got to look at the strength as well. And I think, you know, we can talk about Andy and the doubles, um, you know, being a very good player. But if, I, if I'm being extremely honest or brutal, I actually think Jamie was the better one for us uh, in those doubles matches in all, all of them. Um, because, because Jamie actually was returning well 
Andy obviously returns exceptionally well, but Jamie puts so much pressure at the net when Andy makes a good return. He was able to help Andy out on his serve a lot. Um, I think at the net, he just is more active, more uncertainty, you know, caused for, for the opponent. So he's he just he's, he sometimes does these kamikaze, kamikaze moves and that throws people off. And then later on, they don't want to be part of that, start making errors. So, you know, he really did a good job of that. Um, on the flip side, when you look at Andy, I mean, he has this sort of mentality that as a partner, if you play with him or, or even if you're in part of a team with him, there's this sort of confidence that he's like, I'm going to produce now and it's going to happen, you know, and the way he says it, the way he kind of shows it through his body language, you're like, this guy's going to get it done. And mm. and he knows when he needs to like literally knuckle it down focus wise. And, and this is the, because he sees, he knows when the momentum can shift and when's the time to really turn it on. And um, very kind of assured, but calm, even in the big moments. And then there's also the fact that when you look at his singles, I mean, his competitiveness, uh, his desire um, and his willingness to kind of push through every sort of barrier, whether it's fatigue, whether it's pain, um, you know, or, or even when the, when the score is against him, he still believes that he can come through and, and produce. And I think there's not many people that I've come across that are like that, that, that can, that can impart that on you as a doubles partner or impart that on you as a teammate as well. I've seen one or two, but, when they say this things and you're like, wow, I, I really, really believe it. It's not a bluff. This is a guy who really believes it. And I think that's a very rare thing. I think a lot of people talk the talk um, and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we got this, we got this. But, you know, deep down, you're like, you know, the guy is positive. He's optimistic. I love it. But it's not that real belief. And that's what Andy has. And generally, really, just speaking, how's the Murray brothers, you know, yourself and your partner, um, Luke, how do you generally pick your partner? Is it, do you have to be friends first or is it like the summer transfer window where it comes around with a bit of whispers like, I'm going to bid for him, I'm going in for him. How, do you, how does it go about? 100%. It's 100% like the summer transfer window. And there's, people, <laughs> or there's you know, people that like you know, the people they want to play with. There's all sorts. You want to play with it from the same country sometimes. You know, I've, I've traditionally played with foreigners. I don't know why. Um, I just have. But this year, I've noticed, for example, that, you know, I was playing with a guy called Isam Qureshi, lovely guy from Pakistan. You know, we won a tournament last year, uh, well, yeah, last year, at the beginning of the year before the COVID hit. Um, and then at the end of this year, I thought, you know what, this COVID uh, is, is really putting up some challenges. And I think it's going to be really important. Uh, you know, we talk about mental health, but, we, you know, to kind of break it down, it's going to be really important to try and enjoy these weeks as much as possible, given the issues that are going to be, you know, rising. And um, and I thought that with someone like Luke, who I knew well, a fellow Brit, you know, we'd have a coach who I know well, again, another Brit, we'd be, you know, kind of working with him. It'd be much more enjoyable on the road, you know, whether it's playing cards, chatting, you know, bantering, it's that kind of English banter that other guys don't have. And, and so it's important to kind of play with someone that you know you can enjoy traveling with. And that, I think that's a big part, especially now, given all the circumstances. It's not like you can go out and you know, some people, they don't care. They don't hardly hang out with their partner besides tennis court because they can go, you know, they're traveling with their girlfriend, they're going out into town, they're going to go see, you know, nice places, go to nice dinners, et cetera. That's fine. But you don't have that now. So now more than ever, actually, your partner is actually quite important. Um, 
And that's why I wanted to play with the Brit this, this last year. Um, and I've really enjoyed it. So, you know, that's the situation that can be. But I know there's definitely times where, you know, I was playing with someone and then the, a third person came to my doubles partner, for example, and was like, listen, I think me and you could do really well. Let's play. And my partner's like, okay, and right. dishes me, just <laughs> like that. You know, it happens. So, uh, and some guys have done it in a, in a decent way. Some guys have been, you know, didn't do it in a very good way, to be honest. Um, and so those are the kind of individuals you know, it's very much like that. It's like a relationship. If I if I could, you know, be honest about it, you know, in some cases you have a good solid relationship. In some cases you've got someone that cheats, and in some cases you just have a natural breakup. So I know it sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but that's exactly how the doubles tour kind of works. So um, yeah, it, it is what it is, and there's all these different experiences and different stories, and you know, that's the way the world works. And what was it like when you were partnered with Florin and then obviously unexpectedly moved on and then you played him and beat him with your new partner very soon after? Was it a bit of a two fingers up, a bit of a have some of that? Or was it like... That was one of the instances where it, I don't think it was done the right way, you know? So I was definitely kind of keen to... to The next time we played, I was like, I want to beat this guy because yeah. I want to kind of show him that, you know... Uh, I mean, I don't think he made a bad decision. If I'm being completely honest, it, you know, he was playing with a guy who was more experienced afterwards. They actually had a very good run. They did very well that year. So um, to be honest, it's not like I'm saying, oh, listen, you screwed up because he's, yeah, yeah. you know, it kind of worked out for him. But I thought that we actually were doing really well. And I thought it was a bit soon to kind of be, you know, you know, yeah, bagging it and moving on. But yeah, so we played him at the US Open. I think it was quarterfinal maybe. Um, and that was also a big match. So I was like, I really want to get this one done. And it was, yeah, safe to say it was a sweet feeling. Yeah, good. <laughs> and you said you played with quite a lot of, obviously, foreign players. I mean, how does it work? You said the first partner, I forgot his name, was in Pakistan. How, how, where do you practice? Do you go halfway? Do you say, like, we'll meet in Dubai and practice before tournaments? Or how does No, it so, yeah, I was, I was playing with Isam, his name was. Um, oh, no, I mean, uh, the thing is, I think... Obviously, it's ideal to play with someone um, that you can train with. Uh, and but the thing is, ultimately, when you're training with somebody, you're playing not with them. You're playing on the other side of the net from them. So and a lot of times, it's not that vital. Um, it's more important to kind of like play practice sets against other people, which is still not that easy. Granted, it helps a lot. Um, but even someone like Luke this year, I mean, Luke lives in Dallas, so... Um, you know, his fiance is from there, so he lives there. So it's not like we get a chance to really train back here in London that much. But I think it's also once you're a sort of an established doubles player and you know, you know, what he's going to do roughly, what you're going to do, that kind of slots back in. And yes, mm -hmm. it's ideal to, to try and train if you can. But I think a lot of times we try and meet up early before tournaments um, to kind of get some practices in, try and get a few practice sets against other teams so that when your first match comes along, sort of ready to go so um yeah ideal to play to play together but not not completely always necessary uh, i think that the another thing i wanted to ask you about is sort of a, an experience you had as you went to the olympics in 2016 you went out to rio and obviously the well you talked about south korea there's a certain reputation that the olympic village has for hedonism let's go with to describe it that way uh, and did you have anything happen when you're in the olympic village that you saw was that was particularly ridiculous any any shareable stories and also the, the, the opening ceremony how does that all work how does that actually come into practice do you just show up and hope it all falls into place or is it a super well rehearsed affair um 
Okay, so a lot of questions there. Um, yeah, I mean, Rio. I mean, Rio was an amazing experience. Uh, you know, and I think that's probably one of the proudest. Actually, it is the proudest moment of my career. One hundred percent. The opening ceremony, walking out there with the other British athletes, by far is the best experience of my life. Um, and I know that the guys and girls in 2012, they weren't able to actually um, walk this opening ceremony because they were staying in Wimbledon. And obviously to Stratford, it's a long way. The whole experience, the whole, you know, experience takes a lot of time. So it would have been carnage. And, and actually uh, tennis starts the day after the opening ceremony. So there's no downtime. Wow. Um, so what happened was in Rio, uh, what was slightly different was the fact that they weren't asking us to hang out there for the whole period. We basically had a police escort, like a, almost like a lane on the motorway to take buses there. And they would schedule the buses according to when you were about to walk out. So in fact, you would get there like, I think the Brits, for example, we got there when the first team was already walking out. So <laughs> after the whole, you know, Giselle Blumenhan walk and, and all the other kind of mumbo jumbo. I mean, when that was happening, <laughs> I was still in the village when that started. So by the time we got there, already other teams were going out. And so, yeah, we had to wait in lines. It takes a long time. People are walking slowly. So I think we had to walk about two hours in a line outside <laughs> before we got actually into the kind of opening ceremony bit. And then we literally walked around the stadium for about a total of 10 minutes, walked back out, got in a bus and went home. <laughs> so, so the thing is, it's like, you know, they, they wanted to give the, every athlete the best chance to kind of experience that whilst not overdoing it. But if I'm being completely honest, I think we probably would not have been allowed to do it had it not been for Andy being the flag bearer. So because Andy was the flag bearer, he had to go. And as a result, it would have been very difficult to convince the rest of the players that they can't go. Yeah. So. And I'm, and to be honest, I'm glad. I think I would have. I mean, I said it. I said it because there was a vote even uh, in our team, and, and I said, "Listen, I'm being very honest here. If I don't get to go to the opening ceremony, I'm going to be in such a bad mood <laughs> that it would be worse for me if I don't go mentally than the physical issue, perhaps, yeah. of of not of of going. You know, yeah. so." And to be honest, we were back home by like 9.30 or whatever it was. So, or 10, I would not have been asleep by that point anyway. So I don't think that really affected us. And I think that actually that was probably one of the few things that the, um, the Rio organizers did really well. Um, <laughs> they did that one extremely well to help the athletes. But when it comes to the other, other things, I mean, yeah, the, the, the village was maybe not in the best shape. I mean, I know there were loads of different blocks. And so the British block had their own one. We were in block five. And as it turns out, I think there's something like 25 blocks, 26 blocks. And the higher up the number was, the less finished the blocks were. So when you were, I know I know um, the Polish guys pretty well, and they were in block freaking 22 or something like that. And there was, it was, just, it was embarrassing what was going on in their block. I mean, it was, it was really unfinished and, and, you know, pipes were showing and, you know, water was nasty and all that stuff <laughs> so i think we did a great job and i know that uh, the, the british team actually flew out their own plumber um to be on there at all times uh, ready on call for any issues so um that was pretty useful uh the hedonistic yeah well there were at, at, uh, at all these places they actually have um condom dispensers in the dining area so um, <laughs> 
Yeah, the dining area. You walk into the dining area. It's like massive airport hangar-esque dining area with about 20 million stations for food. And and as you walk in, though, there was literally condom dispensers there. So you just hear, you just you just see people just <laughs> bosses dispensing party. Um, but but the thing is, I, honestly, I don't think it was. Um, I think most of it happens in the second week. I think there's a lot of athletes that are like. You know, first week, they got most of their events. Um, no one's usually done that early. Um, and if I'm being honest, I didn't actually get to see much of it because um, we played on the Saturday. We actually lost first round, which really sucked. But um, I was there till the Thursday. And then I actually had to leave. Um, so that's the first week, Thursday. I had to leave because I was going off to play Cincinnati uh, the, the week after, which is a master series. So... Yeah. I didn't really get to see any of that stuff. And I and I heard that basically that weekend and the second week is when it really boots off and kicks off and you've got like parties going on in the blocks and things like that. But I think first week, most athletes are pretty respectful because they know that a lot of the other athletes have been training for the, you know, years for this moment. So they're not, I think as much as people want to enjoy it, they also aren't assholes about that kind of stuff. So, yeah. so we, yeah, we didn't really see that, but um I'll tell you one thing that I thought was hilarious was how many, like literally the dining hall, Usain Bolt, there must have been a conveyor belt of girls coming up to his group <laughs> and wanting an autograph. And I and basically like a Safa Powell was, I would I'd almost say he was like his doorman because he was literally there checking out these girls and anybody that was decent looking at him, like, hey, come sit down, come sit down. <laughs> and if they were like, you know, maybe not of to their liking quick autograph and move on so um so yeah i i'm, I'm sure that uh, those boys there they they, they must have had a um, an enjoyable olympic <laughs> let's put it that way and don we won't keep you too much longer other than a very successful tennis career so far there's a little rumor going around which we're not too sure if it's true or not and um, we did some digging you also have a little career as an actor I don't know whether this is right. Um, were you the tennis double for Paul Bettany in the 2004 Wimbledon film um, as, as Peter Cole, the man himself? Yes, that's true. Play? That is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. That, that was true. Yeah, I, I, got, I got that role. I don't, know, I don't know how I kind of... Well, I, didn't, I don't know how I got it, but I just... The guys were literally... I was meant to go because so, Pat Cash basically asked me to go. Um, I was down at Queen's and... Uh, and he was like, oh, look, we're looking for players to kind of like mill around in the background whilst they're acting. So it looks like there's a tournament going on, you know, very distance in the back. You know, you're going to be like having people playing on the court. So it looks like there's a, you know, matches being played, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, yeah, OK. He doesn't want to be in a Hollywood production, sure. <laughs> so I rocked up to Wimbledon, you know, to kind of you know, put my name forward. And then they're like, you look a little bit like our main character who... At the time, I had no idea who was in the film. You know, I didn't know who the actors or actresses were going to be. I didn't know what the storyline was. I was just like, okay, cool. And I thought there was going to be maybe like seven or eight other people doing the same role. And then a few days later, they came back to me after taking my pictures, like front and side, all that kind of mumbo jumbo. And uh, and they were like, yeah, we'd like you to be the stunt double for the main character. I was like, okay, cool. What does that mean? And they're like, oh, basically, you're going to have to be the whole summer with us doing, you know, eight till eight. And I was like, right, okay. Uh, well, I was planning to play some, you know, junior events because, uh, you know, at the time, I think I was only like 17, 17, 16. So 
I was still doing schooling and I was like, I was like using the summers to kind of get my junior ranking up, you know? And so that was basically all of that out. And, um, yeah, I talked to my dad and I was like, you know what? I kind of want to be in a movie. <laughs> so, yeah. so, <laughs> forget the pro tennis, I want to be in a movie. Yeah. So, um, yeah, um, you know, kind of we did that and uh, it was really nice because actually it helped, you know, the money that we that I made helped, you know, go towards um, my college, you know, paying off my college uh, the first semester and things like that or first year. So, yeah, it was a great experience. You know, I loved it and uh, definitely a memory that I'll always cherish. And you said your role initially, you were just going to sort of linger in the background. It's a pretty heavy duty production. Um, obviously, Centre Court, when they play the final, was, was that CGI or was it literally that packed out with, with extras? No. So what they did was, well, first of all, all the tennis points, they, they, they CGI'd the ball in. So, that, so we were literally stroking, like doing air balls <laughs> and, and, and they would just put the ball in. But what... The problem was that what the actors didn't realize was actually the timing and how long it actually takes. So the, the issue that the film had, if I'm being completely honest, was that the actor would see the other actor swing and then he would start swinging straight away. And then it, the timing just wasn't right because they didn't know how these kind of, you, you know, once you don't do it for a living, you don't realize how long it actually usually take. So it kind of was completely out of sync. So that's why those rallies look sometimes are a bit ridiculous. But <laughs> with regards to the the fans, what they would do is they, they'd literally take a sliver of the court from the very bottom to the very top and fill that sliver, I would say probably about one-tenth of the stadium full of people. And then they would superimpose that one-tenth all the way around so yeah. that it looked like a full crowd. But the, the best memory I had was that the, the, the guy that played uh, the stunt double for the finalist um, was a guy called Jason Torpy. He was an, also a good player from Britain and um, one one of the times they're like listen what we're going to do is we're going to get these fans just to scream and shout for you know Peter Colt and um, you know whatever the, the finalist name is I can't even remember and you and Jason you, you just go off and play a match on centre court play your match like it's a normal match and the crowd will just keep moving around we'll keep filming and all that kind of stuff but you just carry on and I'm like hell yeah this is what we're talking about Set for let's play a match. And the funny thing is, Jason Torpy was much better than me. And we've been doing that. We've been playing points and stuff like that on the outside courts as well. And, and he was always beating me. And that's the one time I won a set was on centre court against him. So that was extremely special for me. So, um, yeah, but that was that was really cool. That was really cool to be fair. Sounds incredible. Right, we like to finish with some quick fire questions. Okay. So just straight up. First of all, if you weren't a tennis player, what would you be? Uh, an actor. Nice. <laughs> I'll take that nice. one. Take that one. Nice. That's great. And two famous people from the world of sport beyond tennis, and so not tennis, you know, add to that. Take them to a desert island. What two people, celebrities are you taking? Uh, Stephen Redgrave, because he actually might be able to row us off that island. <laughs> oh, that's good logic. I like that. That's um, and uh, ooh, pressure, pressure. I mean, Thierry Henry, because he's just a bloody legend, isn't he? Yeah. Um, next up, and you can't include Wimbledon in this, your, uh, your three favourite films in no particular order. I can't ask Wimbledon. <laughs> um, three favourite movies. Um, oh, to be fair, I'm a big Christopher Nolan movie fan. So um, any of the Batmans, uh, Inception, probably. 
Um, and I actually always say this because I love this movie because I watched it as a kid, uh, was Cool Runnings. Absolutely love that movie. Unbelievable. Great film. And, and most importantly, the most controversial question of all that we've asked all our guests, chocolate in the fridge or out the fridge? In the fridge. 100%. Thank you very much. We've done it again. We've done it again. Honestly, I don't think we've had one guest out of the fridge. I don't, I don't understand this. I'm simply, I can't believe I've not had one person yet agree with me and I just, I'm baffled. Are you going out of the fridge, do you? Of course I do. It takes all the flavour away if you eat it cold. What's the point? Are you, talk- you know when it, when it cracks, that's, that's, that's not the best thing. thing. Oh, Dom knows. Dom's got all... right. Yeah. Dom's got right. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Here's a question. You put two lint balls one in the fridge and one outside in a hot day and see which one you like. I'm not, I'm not saying leave outside in the sun in a hot day. <laughs> yeah, because it, it melts. I mean, what? okay, I guess we are in England. It's maybe not the hottest, but well, now it is. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, that, that, that's all, Dom. But thank you so, so much for coming on. Um, some brilliant insight there into the world of doubles, the world of tennis. Um, and yeah, we're really, really grateful for having you on. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you very much, Dom. And uh, when you retire, maybe take a bit more acting. We'll probably see you in a few more films. <laughs> I think that, that ship has sailed, sadly, but, you know, we can always dream, I guess. Brilliant. Best of luck at Wimbledon as well, Dom. Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot. Back.